0: morning. I'm Carmen LaBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, Thank you to the listener who uh, sent me an email yesterday that uh, made me chuckle. So I will do my best not to to overuse the word conversation today. I don't know what word I'm going to use as a substitute, but there you go. Uh, So we're going to jump in and talk to each other. Here we go. So Uh, Where in the word are you today? I never grow weary of it. I hope you never grow weary of it either. I have been wandering around in passages of scripture about growth and growing and cultivation and springing forth. And I'm doing all of that because Spring Share is approaching here at Faith Radio. And so I thought I would read you a few verses today that God has been Tilling into the soil of my heart and mind in preparation for Spring Share, which is our spring fundraiser here at the Faith Radio Network, and it's going to take place the week after Easter. So begin praying with us now for God to uh, use the people who listen to this programming and the programming at every hour of every day um, to sow back into the ministry that God might indeed yield to Himself a harvest of righteousness, that the gospel might be extended to more and more people. That is certainly the heart of what we're doing every day. So, Ephesians 2 15. This is a passage that we often focus on the very beginning of speaking the truth in love. Um, but the rest of the uh, the rest of the verse um, is equally as important. So Paul uh commends to us that we should speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into Christ who is the head. So when you think about the role that this radio ministry plays, maybe this is a podcast ministry to you. Maybe this is a streaming ministry to you. It's a media ministry, nonetheless. Um, When you think about the role that this ministry plays in helping you to grow up into Christ, you know, we offer relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching, uh, compelling—well, I'm not supposed to use the word conversations, but that's what they are— hour in and hour out every day, um, and we offer them to you in a way that you can then share them with others and become missionaries of the ministry yourself. So uh, think about the ways in which this ministry has over the course of time and even now is helping you to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. And then um, consider how God might be supplying seed to you as a sower to sow back into this ministry financially. So that... um, that would come from maybe like Second Corinthians 9, where Paul says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way in order that you might be generous on every occasion, which will produce what? Thanksgiving to God. So that's really what we're here to do is to give thanks to God today. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's turn to him as his mercies are new even this morning. Prepare with me prayerfully to uh, participate in Spring Share, which starts um, this spring on April the 6th. All right. uh, Ben Johnson, as always, joins me in just a moment. Many of you have uh, asked, when are we going to talk about the video In which a person who has the word reverend before his name and describes, uh, and people are describing him as a theologian, took to TikTok in a video that went viral on Saturday entitled Jesus a Racist? Yep. That conversation, mm, that discussion is up next with Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. (laughs)
1: It's like the, prize, rise, on the other side of the darkest night don't ever lose hope
0: All right, Ben Johnson joins me now. You can find him at the Acton Institute O-R-G. Ben, welcome back.:
2: Good to be with you as always, Carmen.
0: <laughs> Listeners are getting a chuckle this morning. From the one listener who thinks I use the word conversation too often. So anyway, there you go. It's possible. Huh. It's better than like um.
2: Right. Well, it it is, and this this is a, It's meant to be a dialogue. These aren't you know discursive, <laughs> dramatic presentations that we happen to make <laughs> intersecting with one another. Yeah.
0: That's exactly right. All right. So um, thank you as always for being a delight uh, to talk with early in the morning. So tell people who might have missed it because, you know, first of all, not everyone is on TikTok. I am not on TikTok. Um, but there is a video that has gone viral on TikTok uh, and it happened on Saturday. It's it's entitled Jesus a Racist with a question mark. Um, tell people what, what's going on here.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it's gotten a lot of traction uh, both on TikTok and on Twitter. Uh, Reverend Brandon Robertson, who's a uh, a gay activist but also a minister, graduated from Moody uh, Bible Institute. Put out a video where he he says that Jesus was a racist, and that a Syrophoenician woman confronted him, spoke truth to power, and changed his mind. Uh, and uh, this shows that as a human being, he had to change his mind and evolve on racial issues. Uh, needless to say, that's not exactly the way the gospel story goes. The story can be found in um, Mark chapter seven and Matthew fifteen. And it's it's very clear that's not what's happening. A Syrophoenician woman or a Canaanite woman, depending on the translation that you're using, approaches Jesus. She says she has a daughter who is very ill, and she's approaching Jesus for healing, and at first he doesn't say anything, and the apostles ask him to send her away. She falls down and worships him, and he says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, then she, she comes again and worships once more, and he says... Uh, that it's not meat to take what is for, what is uh, intended for the children and throw it to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs gather up the crumbs that fall under the master's table. And he says, woman, great is your faith, be it done unto you according to your faith. And she goes home, she finds that her daughter is well and healed, no longer demon-possessed, and in her right mind in her bed. That's the gospel story. Now, it's, it's definitely something that raises your eyebrows when you first hear it. Why would Jesus not answer a prayer? Why would Jesus uh, say the words that he said, particularly the phrase dog? Uh, why would he not immediately rush to help this woman? But it's not that difficult to understand if we look at it biblically and if we think about it the way that uh, the church has always intended for us to do this. Great Christian leaders have addressed this through the ages. That is absolutely not what's going on here. What is happening is that Jesus sees the tremendous faith this woman has in her unbelievable humility— and he wants her to be praised for it. And the only way that you can be praised for your perseverance is if you persevere. That's really what's happening here. Uh, in the Gospel, of course, in, in Luke 11, there's sort of the key to this. Right after Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and gives them the Lord's Prayer, he, he goes on to, to continue to say that uh, anyone who is, who is continually importuning other people will be answered. And that's true even on this earthly level, where people are unrighteous and where people do not uh, do not have your best interest in mind. But because of because of the uh, importunity, because of of the lack of convenience that's taking place, they'll answer a Bible. Uh, they'll answer a request, uh, as it says in the Bible. So when it comes to your loving Father, uh, He will certainly come and answer your prayer. But continue to knock and ask and seek. And uh, your Father who is in heaven will answer openly. So it's very clear that's the biblical position on on prayer. Now, you see this very thing in the previous chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, the apostles told Jesus to send them away so they can buy food Uh, in Mark chapter 6. Anytime the apostles tell Jesus to send somebody away, it's a sign something big is about to happen. Uh, and when he says salvation is is uh, not given uh, to anyone except the Lawship of, of of the House of Israel, of course he's talking about his earthly ministry, obviously uh, very very uh, very much after the resurrection. The doors opened to the Gentiles as they were open to all people but when uh, when the church looked at this passage, one of the best expositions of this came from a fourth century preacher named St John Chrysostom so one of the all time greatest preachers, the Archbishop of Constantinople. And he has this incisive mind. Here's what he says. Not in insult then were Jesus' words spoken, but calling her forth and revealing the treasure laid up in her. This is the reason he put her off, in order that he might proclaim aloud this saying and that he might crown this woman with praise. So that's that's the real understanding and meaning of this, is that he put her off to show the treasure that was within her, the treasure of humility, the treasure of faith and you know people may say well that's one commentator but Martin Luther understood it the same way John Calvin understood it the same way John Wesley understood it the same way that's the traditional view but when you reject fundamental aspects of the faith as as uh, this reverend does then you end up losing all understanding of the gospel
0: i am so tempted to um <clears throat> ask uh, a follow-up question. So I'm going to ask it, and then you and I are going to just let it sit there, if that's okay with you, Ben. Um, okay. But even even this person being referred to as a reverend, and this person being referred to um, as a theologian um, is troubling to me, and it's confusing to people. And so I just think that as we engage in um, in dialogue in the culture today, sometimes we have to recognize that the application of a title okay or um the imputation of, of of even a standard of ordination is is not is not equal everywhere and it does not mean the same thing everywhere and so um i just think that just because someone graduated from a christian institution does not necessarily make them a christ follower in fact it often you know it, it that's often not the case and so i just i want people to be aware of that just because you see the title reverend in front of someone's name do not assume that that means what it means in your local congregation um, or in your denomination because that word is um, is applied in various and sundry ways uh, in, Yeah, in different institutional expressions of the church. So I'll just let that set right there. Ben and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask him what concerns him about the PRO Act. And yes, he's going to tell us what that is first. We'll be right back.
2: My right,
0: my right given by God. All right. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can read what he's writing at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Uh, ben, what is the PRO Act and why does it concern you?
2: The PRO Act is short for Protecting the Right to Organize Act of 2021. It was introduced in the last Congress, and it passed the House, but it wasn't taken up in the Senate. Now that the Senate is 50-50, it's certainly going to get a hearing. And, of course, Joe Biden has said that he is in favor of it. Uh, It it passed the House on Tuesday by a vote of 225 to 206. Now, what the bill does is the greatest expansion of union organizing uh, in modern history, possibly in history, certainly since the Perkins Act, of FDR. What uh, the bill will essentially do, first of all, is strike down all right-to-work laws in all 27 states that have them. What that means is if there's a union in your workplace, you have to belong or you have to give your money to that union, whether you want to or not. Uh, It makes no difference if you don't choose to be unionized. It will force you to fund a union, uh, even if you are at odds with what the union is all about. Uh, If you wish to opt out, uh, they, they will not allow that. Coast to coast. Uh, so that's that's the first and most concerning part. Uh, also, you'll have uh, em- uh, employers are not allowed to um, to have equal voice with the unions. Right now, union organizers can of course try and start a union in workplaces, and it's uh, allowed for employers to hold meetings to tell people the opposite side. If you institute this union, uh, it will force us to lay off X number of people, for example. They can say something along those lines. This would eliminate that. Uh, so that employers no longer have the ability to say, what is the downside of unionizing? So it essentially uh, skews the, uh, the picture, sort of cancels the employer's voice in what's going on, and it deprives workers of information about what's going on. Uh, one of the most concerning parts to me, uh, particularly because it influences and affects me, is the fact that uh, it, would, it would have a negative impact on people who are freelancers. Uh, there was a similar bill in California, Assembly Bill 5, just a few years ago, and the PRO Act uh, has a new test to determine whether you're an independent contractor like I am. Uh, the uh, the Instead of following the current test, which the IRS has handed down, they come up with what they call an ABC test, and it's the center one that's really concerning, the B prong of that. It says that in order to be an independent contractor, the service you do has to be quote outside the usual course of the business of the employer. Now, I'm a freelance writer and I'm a freelance reporter. Occasionally, I'm a freelance uh, voice actor, and you can hire me get the rights writer but, uh, but nonetheless, what the what I do is within the normal scope of the business of the people I work for. Uh, you know typical websites publish articles by writers, and I write them. So uh, under this test, they would either have to hire me full time as a as a contractor. Uh, as, as 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 an employee uh, or they would have to never hire me ever again and mm. uh, and so this is this is the big concern uh, of course the vast majority of independent contractors are women uh, there are as many independent contractors by the way as many Americans choose to be independent contractors actually more choose to be independent contractors than to belong to a private sector union so uh, it takes away a lot of choice about whether your your money will fund unions, but it also has the ability to uh, strike down uh, whole whole industries like Uber and Lyft and uh, freelance writers like myself. Uh, after the uh, California bill passed, actually, there was a, a referendum statewide that sort of addressed certain parts of it for certain industries, but not for others. And uh, there, there are terrible stories of uh, people who have been independent contractors who have seen their income shrink by 75 percent under what's happening here. Uh, They're simply not able to provide for themselves and their families. So, it's highly concerning that this is passed. The good news is uh, it will not overcome a Senate filibuster. Uh, Certain parts of it may end up in Senate uh, budget reconciliation, which only needs 51 votes. Uh, So, you may see that come about. But uh, it's not likely to pass under the current status unless the filibuster is done away with, which some unions are now calling for.
0: All right. The uh, American Rescue Plan has now also passed. The president is expected to sign it into law tomorrow. Um, uh, We have talked about a number of things related to this in the lead up to its final passage, but I just want to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on maybe anything in it that stands out to you uh, as of particular concern.
2: Well, the biggest concern is, of course, uh, the the funding of abortion. Uh, The American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, and yet uh, about a total estimate of uh, $414 billion in taxpayer dollars in this is not subject to what's called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment protects Americans from having their taxpayer dollars fund abortion uh, in the United States. There's also the Helms Amendment, which prevents that from uh, taking place in abortions overseas. Both uh, both aspects of that are left out of this bill. There are certain provisions of the bill that do not comply with the Helms Amendment, so there's funding for foreign abortion. And the Hyde Amendment uh, has been omitted for the very first time in decades. Uh, during the Clinton administration and during the Obama administration, even when they had Democratic-controlled Congresses, the Hyde Amendment was still respected because there were enough people willing to cross the aisle and protect that. And, of course, one of those people happened to be Joe Biden, uh, who who wrote to constituents that the government should not force people who are opposed to bo- to abortion to fund them. So uh, this this is highly concerning. Uh, there are a lot of religious rights groups, a lot of uh, a lo- lot of religious organizations. Who we would say are on the religious left. Uh, perhaps with uh, the same caveat that you offered about the title "Reverend" in our last segment, uh, they are not necessarily biblical thinking they're not necessarily orthodox within the uh, denominations and religious traditions from which they uh, which they claim to represent and yet they have re- they have uh, said that they are in favor of the passage of this bill because it will do good things on poverty and and there are certain aspects of the bill that they believe are worthwhile what's important for Christians to remember is not all moral issues are equal they don't hold equal weight if a bill will fund abortion or further abortion then that bill is is concerning and that bill is immoral. Uh, Christians cannot give their consent to that. Uh, abortion has been uh, prohibited by Christian religion all the way from the time of the Didache, which was written contemporaneously with a Bible. So that's that. Uh, the fact that you might make a few dollars more, it might cut uh, a poverty rate here or there. I, I think the bill uh, would be worth the uh, opposition in itself you know, for the massive uh, amount that it would add to the debt. But when you add the moral concerns, that's highly concerning. Now, 414000000000 mm-hmm. billion won't necessarily all go to abortion funding, but it is available to abortion funding, and that fact in itself makes this bill unworthy of any Christian support.
0: Oh, amen. Um, as always, Ben, thank you so much. You guys can read what Ben is writing at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also follow him uh, at The Rights Writer. Ben, thank you as always so much.
2: Thank you for the conversation.
0: Absolutely. We'll be right back. Now- Tim Tim Keller is a blessed brother in Christ. He is a church planter. He is a fantastic pastor. He's also a husband and a father and a friend, uh, and he is battling pancreatic cancer. So let us be renewed in our call to prayer for him and his health, even as we celebrate uh, the publication of his most recent book, It Is Hope in Times of Fear. Next up, my conversation with Tim Keller.
2: Would you describe your home life as chaotic? Perhaps a little confusing at times? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Let me ask another question. Do you have clear boundaries in your home? And if you do, does every member of the family know where the lines are drawn? I've met a lot of moms and dads who want rules and boundaries enforced, but the kids aren't clear about the expectations. That simply leads to confusion and chaos. Teens need boundaries explained to them. And they need the consequences for crossing those boundaries laid out on a regular basis. So here's the equation I'd recommend for your home. Add clear boundaries and subtract the strictness. It's a proven formula to drain the chaos from your home.
1: Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at ParentingTodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: to have joining me today, Tim Keller, really a friend who needs no introduction. We're talking today about his newest book, Hope in the Times of Fear. Tim, welcome again to Mornings with Carmen.
1: I'm glad to be back. Thank you, Carmen.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Um, We have been praying for you and your family um, and your health uh, during your cancer journey. Um, Love it if you would just fill us in on how we could be praying for you now
1: yeah i'm I'm happy to do that partly because it it does um uh it actually is relevant to the book but uh it, last may I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um as i was sixty nine at the time I'm seventy now at the time I immediately said, well you know psalm ninety says uh we live seventy years and if by means of strength eighty and I said, well, don't have any complaints here um, and we spent a great amount of time praying and weeping about, the, because pancreatic cancer, as you know, generally takes people within months or maybe a year or so once you, once you diagnose it. Um, but, but, uh, fortunately, and, and, you know, as a answered a lot of prayers, uh, the, uh, the first three scans, three months each time. So over the first nine months, my cancer has actually been shrinking under the, under the chemo treatment, which is not easy to take as you know, chemo, but. Um, that is unusual. I mean, my doctor says it's unusual, and what that means is I've, God has given me more time on earth. Um, we don't know how much, but certainly more than a few months, which is really wonderful for my family especially. And um, and so I'm feeling pretty good, though I still take chemo every two weeks, and therefore I have good days and bad days.
0: So first of all, Tim, thank you for sharing that, and um I want to encourage everyone to continue – praying with our brother Tim and his family in the midst of all of this, I think there are probably people listening right now who are wondering to themselves, well, then why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he writing a book? Why is he doing a radio ministry? Why isn't he out, I don't know, sailing to the ends of the earth? So can you talk about why you persist in advancing the gospel in the midst of what you're dealing with?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, I mean, why not say to people, look, uh, give me what I need, but I'm going to go I'm going to do my bag. What, what is it they say? You know, there's places in the world I've never seen. I want to go see that, or there's things I want to do. I've never done. That's silly. If you're a Christian, because first of all, everything here is just a kind of dim hint of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, anything here is going to be a million times better and present. Any good thing here is going to be a million times better and present in the new heavens and new earth. And that's where I'm heading and it'd be silly to do that now the one thing i um the one thing you can't do and actually the bible talks about that where there's places in the book of psalms where it says uh you we i can't praise you from the grave Mm. there's a number of places and you say oh that's silly because when you get to heaven you pray well that's i don't think what he's saying the point is i can't praise him here from the grave unless i write books (laughs) see in other words i can i'll be i'll be fine once i'm dead i'll be absolutely fine way better than you carmen just to let you know. I know. Uh,
0: Okay, so this actually leads us into a conversation about the book, because this is actually what you're talking about in the book, is this hope, the certainty of the hope, um, the future hope, the present hope. So talk with us about um, why write a book—well, I don't even going to ask you why you wrote a book on hope, because it's really Um, obvious—but hope in the times of fear and the connection to the resurrection of Jesus.
1: Well, I'd actually started writing the book um, before I knew I had cancer, and actually before the pandemic, so in the beginning, it really was a book that was more of a bookend. With I have a little book on Christmas too. It's called Hidden Christmas. So originally, it was going to be a set of a short set of meditations on Easter that would go along with my meditations on Christmas. That makes sense, right? But mm-hmm. then suddenly, a the pandemic and every and and it really does seem like the world has been disrupted in pretty major ways, and we still don't know what it's going to be. Uh, lots and lots of fear, and then of course I get. I get cancer. So I'd I'd probably written about, oh, a third of the book, maybe half the book before. And then suddenly I realized, man, the the resurrection is the only way you can face all this, the only way, because I'd gotten enough into the book to realize this is the real hope. This is it. It's the resurrection. It's not just some kind of general heaven or forgiveness even. It's the resurrection. So that's why I, and it's also the main way in which I started dealing with my own fears, mainly about leaving my wife behind. Hmm. Um, and uh, so just to start with, you might, I'm sure you're going to want to ask other questions, draw it out. I started with one chapter only on did the resurrection really happen, because there's a lot of other great books been written on it, even I've written a bit on it. Um, and I was trying to summarize it and really make it something you could just read in one chapter. But the real question is, uh, did it really happen? And, you know, I'm trying to say absolutely. There's an enormous amount of evidence that it really happened. And I realized, see, if, if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, Carmen, everything's going to be OK. It really will. If he didn't, then who knows? So that was the first chapter. And I worked very hard on that chapter. And it did drive deep into me more, more certainty and confidence that he really rose from the dead. And it made it possible to do everything else
0: yeah if Jesus really rose from the dead, everything will be okay, and if he didn't, who knows um that that is the question, and that is a great question for us to be posing um you know in the lead up to Easter with friends who mm-hmm. you know may be skeptics um I want to circle back around because you you know you mentioned sort of the um maybe the most significant fear that you have um, in relationship to what you are experiencing in your cancer journey, um, that's real. Like that is real for people. And I think to hear Tim Keller talk about the reality of, um, of fear and then to answer that with a certain hope, um, that's, that is a comfort and it's, it's true truth. And so let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Tim Keller. We're talking about his brand new book, Um, but we're also, which is hope in times of fear, but we're just also talking about life and the reality of walking by faith in it. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. conversation with Tim Keller. We're talking about his new book, Hope in the Times of Fear. It's a book about the resurrection of Jesus. It's a book about the certain hope we have uh, in his resurrection and the future hope we have as well. Um, Tim, let's let's circle back around to the comment that you made about, you know, fear, um, because we, are, we certainly live in a current landscape of fear. But for those of us who are Christians, we, we meet that with an unassailable hope.
1: Yeah. Now, the I think the thing I believe the thing that we most want is love. I think the thing Mm -hmm. that actually makes everything okay is love. The thing that we're really after is love. And there are a lot of people who say, uh, well, I don't believe there is anything after death. I don't believe in God. I believe that when you die, that's it. So it's just like going to sleep and you don't wake up. And, you know, what's the big deal? uh, Death is nothing to be afraid of. There's one atheist that wrote a book recently called Nothing to be Afraid of. I think that's silly because what you're saying is the one thing that gives you all your meaning in life, which is love, is going to be taken away from you. Hmm. And even though I – even I as a Christian, here's my fear. I don't have that same fear that my love will be uh, diminished and taken away when I die. Actually, it's going to be enhanced. I'm going to go into a whole world of love. But I am leaving behind people who will lose me. And I and I realize I'm doing that, and that's the biggest you know, regret, fear thing I'm trying to avoid, because I do know that there's going to be a gap. Now, the same thing would be true if my wife died before me, uh, or or one of my children died before me. There would be this terrible time in which there would be a hole there that would never, until death itself, would never be filled. So I, I do fear inflicting that on my family. Uh, and I do fear actually even what my children and grandchildren are going to go through in the world because it actually seems to be a less less, less and less secure world.
0: Well, and those are some of the things maybe that are creating such fear in the lives of other people, the uncertainty um, around us, the, yeah. you know, it seem, a seeming rising tide of meanness. I'm sure this is not the meanest age there's ever been, but it feels more mean than it used to feel. Um, talk oh, with yeah. us about the maybe the connection between um, a, a sense of a loss of hope and the rising tide of fear and our our seeming loss collectively as a culture of any sort of narrative that holds it all together?
1: Yeah. Well, see, what you need is a narrative that on the one hand says there is hope and in the end, right and good and justice will win. But at the same time is a narrative that encourages you to do things like forgive, be humble, Um, uh, you know, reach out to people who differ from you, love them, and not just basically try to burn up everything and, you know, in an effort to get power. So what you need is you need both a hopeful narrative that is that you're inevitably the right is going to win, but at the same time, not one that comes through taking power and crushing people, but by serving people, opening up to people, loving people. You know, you know the hymn that goes, It's not with swords loud clashing nor roll of stirring drum, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And uh see the death and resurrection, that's it. See the point is the resurrection happens through a death. It's through suffering, through Jesus or let me let me let me sum it up like this. Here's the book, okay? For Jesus Christ, who gave up everything and or and, and lost everything in order to basically save the world and gain everything. We learned the way up is down. The way to be rich is to give your money away. The way to have power and influence is to serve others. The way to get happy is to not think so much about your own happiness, but the happiness of others. That's the death and resurrection narrative. So you have both an absolute infallible hope. At the same time, a, a narrative that tells you, no, you don't have to go out there and, destroy, and you know, destroy people in order to get power, in order to have the world that you hope you know, will be a better world than the one we're in right now. You just actually have a, uh, a maliciousness on both sides. It shows no concept of death, death and resurrection. No, no concept of Jesus, you know, um, giving up his power in order to serve.
0: When I, when I think about the sacrifice of Christ, and I think about who he is in making that sacrifice, like I'm, I'm like slack jawed. It's hard for me to even imagine. Uh, that the God of the universe would suffer and die in such a way on behalf of one such as me. Um, and then to recognize and acknowledge not only the power and glory of the resurrection, but the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which invites me to repeat that in my own life, to repeat not the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross um, for the forgiveness of sins, but to repeat the sacrificial um, you know, offer your life as a living sacrifice, and then to live that out um, in yeah. the here and now. Talk about that connection—that that on earth as in heaven, uh, or that here now as it will be then. Talk about that as the role of the Christian in the world today.
1: Sure, because see, first of all, every the death lead to resurrection. Elizabeth Elliot, who was a friend of ours, I don't know if you know her or who, who she was, but um, she's always say <clears throat> it's. Um, Basically, that's how that's how all life works: death to resurrection. So he, she would say, if you forgive somebody who hurt you, that's like a death. It feels like a death because you really want to pay back. You want to scratch their eyes out. <laughs> but if you if you if instead you go through the sort of death of saying, no, I'm going to refrain from that, the ro- the relationship can be resurrected and actually so can your heart. You can I mean, the per- you forgive the person, the person repents, and you get the relationship back. And if you just scratch the eyes out, that would be over. She would say, when you die to having your own will and saying, I want to live the way I want to live, I don't want to obey the Ten Commandments. To obey the Ten Commandments is a death because it's saying no to a very, you know, the things you would like to do. But it will lead to a resurrection, which is uh, Christ-likeness and a a love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know, humility uh, and self-control. And so basically, and I'll say one more thing, it's also true of the good and bad things in the life. This is, in other words, everything is basically working out the way Jesus showed, it, showed his salvation, which was going down in order to save us. Um, bad things happening in your life right now, let's call them blessings, blessings that are embraced without God, will end up being curses.
2: Hmm.
1: And things that look like curses, if you totally embrace them in faith, faithfulness and trust in God, things that look like curses with faith in God will end up being blessings. And so that's the death and resurrection narrative that works in every nook and cranny of human life.
0: I mean, that just just reminds me of every story that um, Todd Nettleton tells at Voice of the Martyrs. Like that story right there, that's the one he just tells over and over and over again. Different names, different places, different locations, different life circumstances. But that is the story of Christians around the world who know the reality of persecution. And I think that helping... American Christians see that reality um, is tremendously helpful. You uh, you made reference to Elizabeth Elliot. I remember the conversation we had here with um, Ellen Vaughn, who wrote uh, Elizabeth Elliot's authorized biography, Becoming Elizabeth. And um, yeah, just, I didn't know her personally, but um, wow, what a life, right? What a life.
1: Yeah. And that she was always, that was the way she says every, basically everything about Christianity Every part of Christian life is death leading to resurrection. And by the way, on, on the martyrs, I think it was Justin who I mean an ancient uh, church father who said that the blood of the martyrs is seed, meaning that you know the drops of blood actually end up creating more Christians that when mm-hmm. they're shed on the ground. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing.
0: Tim Keller, what a joy to get to visit with you! Thank you so much. Um, your ministry, uh, it, you know, is has been very significant in many of our lives, even though you know we n- haven't necessarily sat in a pew in a church where you have physically preached. Um, and so you have spoken into our lives in myriad ways. You have raised up and cultivated church leaders. Um, across the United States and around the world in churches far and wide. Um, your your contribution to this generation of Christianity has been significant. And so thank you for this latest contribution, Hope in Times of Fear. It is the brand new book by Tim Keller. You can think of it as the other bookend to his reflections on Christmas, because this, these are reflections, uh, or this is a reflection, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tim, um, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What a pleasure. We'll be right back. All right. There's definitely some of you saying right now, why did she cut that conversation off so early? Well, she recorded that conversation last week, and so sometimes when you take a recorded conversation and you drop it into a live program, you end up with more time after uh, your uh, your taped interview than you um, anticipated. So it's not that I cut Tim Keller off early. So just enjoy the fact that we got him on and we had the opportunity to talk with him. Um, please be praying for him. He really is asking for uh, believers in Christ to be lifting up um, his. His physical state, and um, in particular, that we would be praying with him, that God would relieve the um, uh, peripheral neuropathy that he is experiencing. Uh, makes it hard for him to write, and he, although having just published this book, he is also still under a deadline for another book. And so, let's just be uh, lifting him up uh, in in a spirit of of unity and love, deep appreciation for the contribution that uh, that he has made. In our generation, uh, as a fellow Christian and a fellow believer advancing the gospel, and let us be mindful um, that, you know, he's also just a regular guy and he's suffering real pain. And um, his family is asking the same questions that every family asks in the midst of um, a cancer diagnosis and treatment and the prospect of this life coming to an end. Even as, you know, Tim said at the beginning of our conversation, Uh, he's going to be better off. I mean, like, when we die as Christians, it's just more Christ. Like, that when when Paul talks about to live as Christ and to die as gain, what Paul is saying is, when I die, I get more Christ. Like, that's, you know, here I see, but in a mirror dimly. There, I'm going to see face to face. And not only am I going to be fully known, which is already the reality, like, right, I am already fully known. But on the other side of the life-death barrier, uh, when I get to live again in the fullness of the presence of God, I'm not only going to be fully known, I am going to know fully. More Christ. Like, to live as Christ, to die is gain. I get more Christ. And so for those of us who are passionate uh, about who Jesus is and getting to be with him and knowing God more intimately and more fully and more deeply, um, to die is gain The loss is experienced by people here. The gain is the believer who goes on to be uh, with the Lord. So let me just encourage you in the lead up to Easter to consider the reality of pain and suffering and fear and yes, death. Um, Because when we stand as witnesses at the empty tomb, when we stand as the people who get to declare the good and great news that He is not here, He is risen just as he said he would. Like, we get to be the people that declare something to the world that is literally the world's only hope. What an honor and a gift and a privilege to be the people in this generation who already know the truth of the gospel and have the opportunity and all of the spiritual gifts necessary um, to communicate that to others who are living not in hope but living in fear. The resurrection of Jesus is, as it has always been, the hope in the time of fear, including this time of fear or whatever fear you might be facing today. Jesus is the hope that answers the question of fear and death. Get to know him today. He is available. He has come. Um, Let's just glorify him. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back.